the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program was pre-recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. Welcome to Education Nation, where we tackle the biggest issues in American education. School is now in session. Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Mark Durkin. Good evening and welcome to another episode of Education Nation here on The Patriot. We are glad to have you join us. My name is Andrew Hofstetter and I'm here in studio with your host of Education Nation, Rebecca Hagstrom and Mark Durkin. Uh, Rebecca, Mark, great to see you again. Great, great to be joining. Great to be joined again with you here in studio as we tackle the conversation of education and ultimately what Education Nation is about, ideas to agree on. Mm-hmm. The understanding that there's a lot to talk about with education, but at the end of the day, there are certain things we can all agree on. And that's the conversation the two of you are leading on this program. And uh, we want to continue to introduce the program to our listeners Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. here on The Patriot. So without further ado, I want to turn it over to you, Rebecca. Let's talk about, we're on our 102nd episode of Education Nation. Mm -hmm. What have been the highlights of the last 100 episodes, let's say. Let's talk about what, of all of the last 100 episodes, what's been your favorite? What's yeah. been the highlight for you? Yeah. So it's hard to boil that down to one show, of course. Okay. <laughs> um, but one of the shows that really stands out in my mind is that we um, did a show on Betsy DeVos when she first got nominated as Trump's education secretary. And our listeners will remember that there was huge uproar around that and uh, lots of Arrows headed her way, and uh, so we were kind of curious, who is this woman? Because a lot of people didn't know who she was. And so we did a show to further research her and introduce her to our listeners. Um, and as part of that show, we shared her platform for education. And one of those things that she really values is trying to get the federal government and unions out of education and put it back into the hands of the parents at the local level. And of course, you know, it is what it is right now. So this is a big uphill battle for her. Um, But one of the things that we did on that show then to uh, demonstrate the influence that unions have really had on education um, and just what their what their goals really are, we played a sound clip that we're going to play again here in a little while. Um, from a Bob Channon, who was the retired top lawyer for the National Education Association Teachers Union for more than 40 years. It's a long so, time. It's a long <laughs> time. So he had obviously a lot of influence in the NEA, and people recognize the NEA as being, you know, one of the top two largest teachers unions in the nation. And um, when he was going out as the president, he gave a, a, um, Speech to a full house. It sounds like a, almost like it was a huge stadium. There, there was so much applause. There. Yeah. 
um, to his union people. And he talked about the fact that um, education was more about, or not education, but their role as unions was more about power and what they could do with that power than it was about the kids themselves, which it was a rare moment of transparency. And so we're going to go ahead and play that clip for our listeners now so that you can hear it again. And that brings me to my final and most important point, which is why, at least in my opinion, NEA and its affiliates are such effective advocates. Despite what some among us would like to believe, it is not because of our creative ideas. It is not because of the merit of our positions. It is not because we care about children, and it is not because we have a vision of a great public school for every child. NEA and its affiliates are effective advocates because we have power. And we have power because there are more than 3.2 million people who are willing to pay us hundreds of millions of dollars in dues each year because they believe that we are the unions that can most effectively represent them. The unions that can protect their rights and advance their interests as education employees. This, this is not to say that the concern of NEA and its affiliates with closing achievement gaps, reducing dropout rates, improving teacher quality and the like are unimportant or inappropriate. To the contrary, these are the goals that guide the work we do, but they need not and must not be achieved at the expense of due process, employee rights, and collective bargaining. That simply is too high a price to pay. Too high a price to pay. So now now we have it. What's really at stake for the teachers' unions is not the kids, not developing a public school system that serves all kids well, but it is the rights of the teachers. That is what he is saying right there, that that is more important than how successful the program itself is. That, Mark is why we are where we are today. And that's why we do a show. a failing public system. And exactly. Why we do a show like Education Nation. Yeah, exactly right. Mm. So there we have it again. I, I, for the record, was not clapping when everyone else was clapping. Right. Right. And it went on and on and on and on. It did. And it's good to hear that. I think to hear that's the sentiment of Mm -hmm. of what's being done, what's Mm -hmm. being Mm-hmm. propagated well and i think the scary thing about that if you think back to what um this outgoing president said you know he says because we have power and we have 3.2 million people who are willing to pay their dues and i thought willing because you know what there's quite a few people who are not necessarily willing but they have to in order to get their right. health care or whatever it is and and we've even had a case before the state the the u.s supreme court 
um, with Rebecca Friedman about the collective bargaining rights and, and wanting to be able to not have to pay dues because there's even a requirement that you pay a certain minimum level of your dues simply because supposedly as an employee of the district, you're benefiting from the collective bargaining that the union is doing, regardless of whether you agree with the outcome. Right, right. And not only that, too, but then if you bring politics into the equation, how much of those dollars is going towards a particular political candidate during a presidential election season that maybe a lot of people who are contributing don't agree with? Right. We did. That's actually another memorable show where we went into how much money these unions give to, and it's all Democrats. Like there are hardly any Republican candidates that they give money to. So that's a pretty interesting one too. People can go back and look at our podcast. And and I'm sure we'll bring it up again at some point too. I'm sure it'll come up. There have been, we're talking about uh, for our listeners, uh, we're you're listening to education nation here on the Patriot uh, with our host, Rebecca Hagstrom and Mark Dirk. And I'm Andrew Hofstetter and helping you unpack the last 100 episodes and finding a way to really summarize what you have talked about um, up to this point and, and the direction you're going as Education Nation addresses uh, all the topics around education with the idea of ideas to agree on. Mm-hmm. Rebecca, what if, what would you say uh, was the, the most listened to or most popular episode of the show from our listeners mm-hmm. up to this point. Well, and actually, it's the same one. It's the Betsy DeVos uh, podcast, which did get the most listens. And I'm sure it's just because people were curious about who she was and wanted to know more. Um, but one of the things that we did as as part of our coverage of Betsy DeVos is we also discussed this at length with Joy Pullman, who is the managing editor at The Federalist. And she's... Um, taught extensively. She has received the Robert or the Robert Novak uh, Journalism Fellowship to fund her research on Common Core. So Mm -hmm. she's become a Common Core expert. And so one of the things that we've done with her is that we brought her on for a couple of shows where we talked extensively about Common Core. We talked extensively about Betsy DeVos and what she thought, because it was around the time that she was being named and and going through her hearings. And so she talked extensively about that, too. And again, just as a reminder for our listeners, uh, Common Core um, is a set of national standards that they call it the Common Core State Standards because each state had to adopt them. Um, And interestingly, they were asked to adopt these standards before they were even written. Mm -hmm. And the federal government... uh, kind of put the big carrot of money out there, raised to the top grants. And states were also given the option to opt out of No Child Left Behind, which many of the states were really struggling under the No Child Left Behind Act. And so uh, the federal government took advantage of that. This was during Obama's presidency. And they encouraged states to to race for the top through these grant programs that really wasn't that much money, wasn't enough for all the states, actually, um, to accept these state standards even before they had been written. And they did because they were so hungry to get out of those uh the No Child Left Behind requirements. So all that to say, Common Core has, unfortunately um, for them, but but fortunately for America's school system, Common Core has not become all that they intended it to be, which they really wanted it to be a national system that was kind of lined up under two national tests. 
And um, we'll talk more about that another time. But Bill Gates Foundation was some of the big money behind developing these standards. So we have private foundations involved with this. And I think, you know, you want to believe that they have the best interest of America's school children in mind. Uh, but it's also hard to imagine that a gentleman who made his money with software really knows anything about education. Right. And that's the sad thing about the state standards is that there wasn't a lot of input from actual teachers, you know, boots on the ground teachers. So it got thrust on the teachers and a lot of them have been leaving the field of teaching because they feel like they've become technicians rather than actual teachers in the classroom because Common Core is so detailed. So pretty interesting. So when Trump became elected then, um, he ran on repealing Common Core. You know, this was a big part of his platform, which I was, I was happy that he was making that his platform, like or not Trump. I was glad that he was making education front and center and that he was talking about repealing Common Core. But the question was, does Betsy DeVos really not support Common Core? Because if you looked at some of the foundations she was part of, they were actually encouraging Common Core. So uh, that was one of the big questions. And so then, you know, did she really, was she going to help dismantle it or not? And she, she really just basically said, well, there really isn't Common Core in the state in the states anymore. That's just kind of gone by the wayside. Well, at the federal level, technically she was right, but the states had adopted it already, and the curriculum was already aligned with it, so it was there. And so it was a real misleading statement for her to make it sound like Common Core was no longer an issue, because it really was. Once the rock is thrown in the lake, right. the ripples remain right. no matter what. Right, and, right. and if she had foundations that were supporting it, then you know that she's not going to do a whole lot to try to dismantle it at the state level. You know, she's a state-level person. She doesn't want the federal involvement, but that doesn't mean she's not going to still try to push it behind the scenes at the state level. And so that was a disconcerting piece. And, and that got us talking a lot about transparency. And so we're going to play a quote here that um, Joy Pullman gave us as we were talking with her. Again, she's from The Federalist and knows a lot about Common Core and and so talked a lot about transparency in our show. So we're going to play that clip right now. Someone's uh, understanding of the Common Core issue is key in, is in, in kind of predicting how they're going to think about education policy in general. Okay. Um, the people who support Common Core tend to be what I call technocrats, you know, people who think that the elites who are far away from children, who are far away from families, are still somehow knowledgeable enough to decide how their, the minute details of their lives, of their classrooms, of their education need to be uh, run. Um, so someone who supports Common Core tends to buy into um, that kind of failed central planning idea. Um, that's not always the case. I can understand a situation in which um, where a state had uh, lower quality expectations for kids than Common Core. It might be on a state-by-state basis. They could say, look, you know, we're, we're increasing the expectations for the kids if we do this, even though it's not really that great of a program, so on and so forth. Um, but overall, that's what, the, that plus the education secretary, she has very, very um, wide power. Um, for example, one of them is states have to come to the federal government and have it, it approve in detail their testing systems, their curriculum requirements that's uh, baked into the way that we run education policy now. And so as the Secretary um, DeVos and her staff, you know, have that oversight over what kids are learning already. Okay. And so, therefore, her ideas about what constitute good curriculum, what is acceptable for testing requirements, 
you know, uh, her support for Common Core kind of indicates to us how she will use her power as secretary to tell states what they can and cannot teach kids. Right, Mm -hmm. right. And that's an important detail, too, that I want to highlight for our listeners, that um, even if she doesn't necessarily support it, outwardly at the federal level the way the Obama administration did by offering the race to the top grants, um, she could still quietly support it at the state level, couldn't she? Oh, yes. Well, and there's a number of ways that the Education Department influences um, all of these sorts of related parts. So, for example, it gives lots and lots of money to um, states and to school districts for things like training teachers, for things like developing um, testing systems, so on and so forth. So these are all kind of parts of the Common Core machine um, that the Education Department, you know, has a, a great amount of power to influence. So for, you know, if they're paying for teacher training that is Common Core-minded teacher training, well, that is using its power and its money, our money, mm-hmm. <laughs> to reinforce, right. you know, a, a mode of education that we, you know, that a lot of people disagree is uh, good for American kids. Basically, word for word, what you were saying before the sound. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had forgotten exactly what we had talked about, but that's true. Yes, yes. And and it it is. It's a concern. And, you know, I know that, you know, people have wondered, well, where are we at now? You know, that was February of 2017, that interview. And uh, so just over a year ago. Yep. And, you know, since then, we have not heard a lot about Common Core. It's kind of just a dead issue. And yet, when you talk to parents whose kids are struggling learning their math in school, and that includes even here in Minnesota, where we Mm -hmm. didn't even adopt the math standards, but our our students are still learning math, Common Core math, because that's how the tests are aligned now, um, it still has an effect. And so it is a conversation that still needs to be had. I think originally 47 states were part of it, and now I think about 37 are. Um, but even of those who bowed out, uh, some of them just changed the name. And yeah. and so, you know, it's not necessarily really different from what it was before. They just learned that, oh, if we change the language, then people won't put up such a big Hide it under it. the radar. Hide yeah. it under the radar. Exactly. Yeah. So it's still an issue. It just doesn't have the front and center attention that it used to, which probably isn't good. No. Mm-hmm. A, a great conversation um, that Mark certainly resonates with. You know, I want to hear from you too. What what has been the high, some of the highlights from from your perspective of these last hundred episodes? And I know we're probably going the same path here again. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because what I often say is, is you know, what we're seeing today is symptomatic. But when there are the symptoms that are showing up all across the spectrum, well, there's a root system that has really contributed to a lot of the things we're seeing today. So, I mean, when people think of education, you know, again, we think of issues such as Common Core. National test scores, public schools, private schools, school choice. I mean, the list goes on and on. But what many people don't think of and discuss with the same intensity, okay, how did things generally get to where they are now? And we spent several months in 2017 really discussing how much of the 20th and 21st centuries have seen education shaped by the progressive movement. Now, this movement really began to take shape in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, in which progressives had adopted a philosophy known as German historicism. And we had discussed this at length, but a very basic definition of German historicism is German political thinking as the model for perfecting human society. So in a nutshell, progressives were saying, let's learn from the Germans how to critique individual rights, critique natural rights, and also asserting that the Constitution is evolving. It wasn't a fixed document, according to them, and that doesn't have a permanent meaning. And so in in their study, 
of this German historicism, you know, the progressives insisted that the rights that man possess are not conferred upon him by his creator, but rather by the society in which he belongs. So God is not looked to to direct a man's steps. It's government's job, the legislative authority that was to determine a man's rights in view of the needs of that society. So there's that collective approach. That's what I was just going to say. Yep, that brings us Absolutely. to the collective. And the idea that man is even perfectable. You know, right. that's, that's a new concept from when we were, from when our founders right. from uh, another put together man, the Constitution. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, former Minnesota State Senator David Hahn, he had joined us on Education Nation to really help us answer this question in terms of what does all of this have to do with education? And as many of our listeners may know, Senator Hahn spent 14 years in the Minnesota Senate and his special legislative concerns included education and education reform. And he discussed the founders' take on education, defining for us Article 3 of the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. And here's what he had to say. It just says, religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. That's it. That's the whole thing. That's a direct quote. And so what they're saying is that you need to have three things, necessary things. You know, when you say something's necessary, that's very strong. You need to have religion, morality, and knowledge. Uh, for good government and for happiness. And then they say the, the way you get those things is through schools. Mm-hmm. And what the founders believed is that you had to have people who were virtuous in order to have this sort of self-governing vision that they mm-hmm. had of, of our country, that you had to have people who understood what human nature was, understood what good was. They had to be people who were, who were being taught virtue and, and taught to avoid uh, bad behavior vice. And that's what schools are for, mm-hmm. in conjunction with what families do for their kids. And that, and that was their vision. And so they laid this out with the hope that this would happen. And it wasn't a federal project. There was no federal money. They, you know, people say, well, they didn't appreciate education or they forgot about it. No, they were very concerned about education. But they believed it was the province, not of the federal government, but of local governments. And so they actually, after this law was written, they passed the Land Grant Act, which gave uh, parts of the federal uh, property to local uh, uh, states and local governments to use as an asset base to do schools. And they turned it over to people and said, you do with it what you will as long as this purpose is fulfilled. And today, of course... uh, as I said, this law has not been repealed. It's even worse than that. It's just been completely forgotten. Mm-hmm. People don't even know it exists. Right. And I would just challenge our country, our, our political people, our, our educators to say, why don't we base our education system today on this principle right. Yes. Right. rather than on the one that we have today? Right. You know, it's also important to note that this ordinance was passed by the same people that adopted the U.S. Constitution. Remember, it was John Adams who said that the Constitution was for a religious and moral people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's because they knew that man was simple and not perfectible. And man can't fix man. (laughs) Right. Any attempt to perfect man has always ended in disaster. Absolutely. Yes. And and control. That's where you end up with the tyrants. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Mark, talk about then um, where the show has been and kind of the way we're defining education, the way we should be defining education. Uh, what have the last from these last hundred episodes? Mm-hmm. Um, talk about that. Well, I, like I said, I think it's just very important to understand a lot of the root systems uh, and the, the the collective thought that has really gathered over the last one hundred years. Because when you can start to piece the puzzles together, then you could say, okay, now I see why it's jumped to this, or why they may think that this is the best route to go. And you know, really, in that spirit of. American progressivism that was rising, 
um, it really gained steam throughout the 20th century um, when John D. Rockefeller, he's an, an oil magnate who, along with his close friend Frederick T. Gates, they founded the General Education Board in 1903. And that was really key because the board was responsible for funding the American public school system and spent more than $100 million hmm. in doing so. I mean, can you yeah. imagine how much money that was worth back then? Yeah, that's a lot <laughs> <Wow>. of money. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, so what was happening was, is, you know, the board was influential in shaping the current school system, and their objective was to organize children and create reliable, predictable, obedient citizens. Mm-hmm. They didn't want them to think. They didn't want them to think, and that's why <laughs> Rockefeller came out then and said, mm-hmm. I don't want a nation of thinkers. I want a nation of workers. Now, of course, we've talked about this before. This was not too far removed from the start of the Industrial Revolution, so, of course, there was the need for more workers. But... When you look at the history of the contributions that were made by the Rockefeller Foundation to this general education board, and his good friend Frederick T. Gates, he was the one who was quoted as saying, quote, in our dream, the people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hand. The present educational conventions will fade from our minds and unhampered by tradition, we work our own goodwill upon a grateful and responsive rural What folk. an arrogant rural statement. Can you believe how arrogant that statement is? Elitism. Yes. Yeah. And and this is one of Rock, Rockefeller's cohorts. Is that yes, what she said? Frederick T. Gates yeah, is his yeah. name. Yeah. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, again, a rare moment of transparency. But this is what we see. And, and people don't even recognize that when you, because now 100 years later, People are used to the educational system the way it is, and it's it's kind of the old frog in the boiling pot syndrome. You yes. know, if you if you just warm up the water and let it happen over the course of a long period of time, the frog doesn't jump out. And this is our our educational system as well. We don't jump out necessarily because we don't see the change happening quickly. It's you, such a slow, progressive. If you change. want to know what wet is, don't ask a fish. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's it is frightening to think that we have landed at this place where teaching kids to think is no longer a priority in our schools. And we mentioned this last week too about the two-headed monster about how government and education kind of feed off of one another, especially mm-hmm. when you've got these special interests that are pouring in hundreds of millions of dollars so yeah. then to kind of really change the direction of education. Again, you know, I'll just say it again. Abraham Lincoln said the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government of the next. And mm-hmm. we're seeing that play out absolutely. more and more. Absolutely. We yeah. absolutely mm-hmm. are. Here at Education Nation, we are talking about ideas to agree on. And we're with your hosts, Rebecca Hagstrom and Mark Durkin. And just as we wrap things up, um, I want to talk about um, what is Next week, what what do we have coming down the pike? What what should listeners be expecting for next week here on Education Nation? Yes, we we have an interview with Catherine Kirsten, who is a senior policy fellow and a founding director at the Center of the American Experiment, mm-hmm. and she's going to discuss uh, Minnesota's investigation right now into whether or not forty three school districts and charter schools have what's known as discriminatory discipline practices when it comes to racial discipline gaps. Mm-hmm. Now we can all agree that as parents. We want to see each and every student treated with dignity, respect, and for no reason not looked upon more favorably over other students. So this will be a a good discussion. Mm -hmm. Well, and if any of our listeners are familiar with the Edina Public School articles that Catherine Kirsten has written, she's put those into the Star Tribune. She also has been writing for uh, Thinking Minnesota. And um, there have been a few people that have, you know, come back at her. And we're going to talk more about that at yes. the, uh, during the show next week. But 
in the meantime, I I would recommend to our listeners to go back and listen to some of our older podcasts. They're actually not that old. They were just like probably what show like 96, 97 or something when we had Catherine Kirsten on to talk about the Edina Public Schools. Mm -hmm. And you'll get a sense for what's happening in that district, but that that is really spreading throughout really the whole nation, not just uh, one district in Minnesota. This is becoming a common theme. And this whole notion of racial equity practices and and then thus this potential case in the state of Minnesota is coming really from that mindset of white uh, privilege being kind of the, the problem in the race uh, the racial achievement gap that we see in our nation's the demagoguery schools. of whites. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so that's really where this is all stemming from. So in preparation for next week's show, uh, go and check our podcasts out at the Patriot and also Liberty Classical Academy under resources. And then join us again next Saturday at 6 p.m. on the Patriot. And we will continue this conversation on ideas that we can agree on. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.